0: How would you like to get face time with some of the world's leading thinkers? Welcome to Boss Masterclasses. We've rounded up some top experts to lead deep dive discussion sessions with up to 12 attendees per session. Each masterclass is split into separate parts to give you time to digest and mull over some of the information and allow you to follow up at the second session. You'll also leave with new tools, skills and ideas to take back to your team. Boss Masterclasses are available now, all led by experts, all designed exclusively for you. Visit businessofsoftware.org masterclass. Hello and welcome to Boss Podcast episode 39. I'm Kirk Bailey and this week I am joined by the super mensch Derek Sivers, founder of CD Baby and author of Anything You Want.
1: Welcome to the Business of Software podcast where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org
0: Derek Sivers has been a musician, circus performer, entrepreneur, TED speaker and book publisher. Long ago he started CD Baby and wrote the great little book called Anything You Want about that journey. In this boss talk Derek will offer some perspectives on what we can do to be more mensch and make the world a better place, how we end up on the right side of history and why we should keep our eyes on how the game we play is going to end. Derek breaks the mould in two ways for his 2019 boss talk by opening the session with an auction and then closing the talk with a Q&A session that sees the audience answer the questions instead of asking them. Happy listening!
2: So Mark asked me to start out by doing something ridiculous. So I'm going to, I went to the bank and I got a 50 dollar, sorry, sorry, 50 pound note. And we're going to auction it off for a dollar, just to be ridiculous. Sorry, sorry, pound. I'm new here, I'm getting used to this. We're gonna auction off the 50 pound note for a pound. Does anyone want it? Okay, this could be really convenient. If you have any coins, you would rather swap for a bill. The regular rules of an auction apply, this is not a, uh, it, you know, it's just a regular 50 pound note, this isn't like a trick thing. The Regular rules of an auction apply, and the second highest bidder still has to pay their bid, but doesn't get the 50 pound note. <laughs> Bids start at one pound, who wants to begin? One pound, okay, one pound. Uh, actually, I think you have to call it out, right? You see the, Okay, one, two, two. Four. four, yes. 20. 20, nice, smart, let's get this rolling. 20 49 smart okay 49 and 20 are the two runners up <laughs> Anybody else you better you know you better keep bidding or somebody has to keep bidding otherwise you're out 20 pounds and you get nothing That's right 50 smart okay 49 and 50 <laughs> Okay You don't want to be out 49 pounds right for nothing right <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? We got 49 pounds, 50, okay, there we go. 51, smart, okay, 51 and 50 are the two leaders here. You're off the hook, you're good. Okay, so you, you can see where this is going um, and we'll set up our transactions afterwards, 51 and 50. Um, so the problem is not thinking things through to the end and asking yourself, how will this game end? So when a game starts, it's really easy to think short term and say, ooh, cool, good deal, 50 pounds for a pound. And then when it's too late, you realize like, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? Uh, I saw this game played the first time years ago. Uh, It was a little more impressive because in America they have the $100 bill. And so it was at South by Southwest with all these kind of like, uh, hungover people, and they said, you know, the $100 auction, and it actually kept going all the way to like $150, because then it's like, well, now how much am I going to lose? I, I don't want to lose So, um, People get themselves into life situations like this. So an optimist buys a house that's a little out of their budget, the romantic gets into a relationship with somebody who's already in a relationship, and then you can hear them complaining later about how they're so in debt or how their sweetheart is cheating on them. And the situation was stacked against them from the beginning, so the smart choice would have been to not play the game at all. So I think we should always ask, how will this game end, even though it's not fun to think through the long-term implications of our actions. So I think, uh, I like to think often about like the difference between shallow happy and deep happy. So shallow happy is playing the next move. Deep happy is playing the long game. So for business of software, for this conference, I think Uh, each of us have a a version of the game we might be playing. So whether the game is taking on investors or the game is A-B testing, um, you gotta think, how will this game end? So the troubles of taking on investors, I know nothing about that and it's well discussed elsewhere. So let's talk about A-B testing. A-B testing measuring the results of the test, but not the morality of the means. But who can argue with the objectivity of A-B testing producing measurable results? Well, I'd say a human being with empathy can. (laughs) Because A-B testing doesn't measure the morality of the means, and so often the winning test results are the ones that trick people into doing things they didn't want to do. That gets the best results. And so we ask, how will this game end? Dark patterns. Please raise your hand if you already know this term, if you've heard of dark patterns. Okay, good. Don't worry, I'm not gonna like do one of those talks where I tell you about dark patterns. Um, Harry Brignall uh, is a consultant in London that uh, kind of noticed this trend of antisocial behaviors and he coined the term dark patterns. He defines dark patterns as instances where designers use their knowledge of human behavior and the desires of end users to implement deceptive functionality that is counter to the user's best interest basically tricking things, tricking users into doing things they don't want to do. So we'll just look at a couple dark patterns quickly. Just for example, Uh, free shipping, small print, you know, with a prime membership. Bait and switch is where you think you're getting one thing, but an undesirable thing happens instead. Or hidden costs where at the end of a checkout process, you might not notice that unexpected charges have appeared. Um, Forced continuity, is when a free trial silently ends and your credit card silently starts getting charged without any warning. Or uh, he coined the term, or called this the roach motel where it's easy to get in but hard to get out. Like making it difficult to cancel a membership. So yeah, you probably you know about dark patterns already. Uh, you, you can see talks and read articles about them. They're well discussed, but if you wanna know more, you can go to darkpatterns.org for more info. But I'd say that they're not just user interface patterns. It can be things like hiding things in your terms and conditions in the small print, or selling customer data, or anything else that customers would be unhappy about if they fully understood. So, what to do about it? Do we just stop doing it? I actually emailed Harry Brignall that came up with the term in preparation for this talk, and I said, so what is the opposite of a dark pattern And he said, "Um, not doing it. I said, no, 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 I don't know. I think we can do more than that. Um, I think the opposite of negative x is plus x, not 0. The opposite of a mountain is not flat ground. The opposite of a mountain would have to be like a crater in the ground. So I like playing this uh, thought game where I ask myself, what is the opposite of something? Sometimes it's a pure creative exercise where you focus on one facet of something and you take just the opposite of that aspect of it. So I often imagine a, uh, you know, let's just say a Ruby. We're at a programmer's conference. Um, So if you take it like a Ruby and you just take one facet of it and you were to pull that over here, it makes a different shape. You don't have to find the exact opposite of a Ruby. You take one facet of it. So for example, the opposite of music is not silence. The opposite of music is business. Uh, So, (laughs) let's take a tiny tangent and talk about the usefulness of overcompensating. So, let's say you have a thought process or a habit that you want to fix. So let's use the metaphor of a bunch of bricks on a seesaw. Right now, all the bricks are stacked on one side. Let's say that this is the metaphor for how you have been and how you are now. To make a change, most people don't do enough. You often do something small and sensible, the metaphor of moving one brick to the other side, but then you're still unbalanced. You think you made the change, but it's not accounting for a lifetime of doing it the other way, Uh, the environment that made you that way, the pressure from friends to stay the way you were, and the undertow of old habits. So to make a change, you need to be extreme. You need to go all the way the other way. It will feel like overcompensating, but you have to stack a huge pile of bricks on the other side. And this new you will sound extreme and it will sound exciting and you will think that you are now going to be completely changed. But actually, the old stuff is still there. So what you really needed to do, this is what you needed to do to balance, to compensate for all that cultural baggage the self-identity, the habits and the history, is you needed to overcompensate to balance it, and then eventually it will sink in and become your new normal. So now let's talk about the word mensch. Who already knows the word mensch? Please raise your hand. Okay, cool. About half through. So mensch is a Yiddish word that means a person of integrity and honor, uh, someone of noble character with a sense of what is right and responsible. Uh, the concept originates uh, with Cicero in 60 BC had this notion of humanitas, meaning the human nature, civilization, and kindness. And I thought it was interesting when I geeked out to get ready for this talk and I was digging into this, I found out that the, uh, in that same code of conduct, says the word philanthropia originally meant loving what makes us human. I thought that was cool, especially considering Stephanie's talk later today. Um, so, humanitas, when translated into German, Uh, was translated as menschlichkeit, and so the Yiddish word mensch is the cognate of the German word mensch, meaning human being, which you might also know from Nietzsche's proposal of the ubermensch, which means a human being that doesn't try to chit-chat when driving you somewhere. (laughs) So, is it enough to just stop doing dark patterns? No, I think we need to overcompensate for our morally challenged neighbors on Earth. We can't improve the world just by not doing harm. I think we need to actively do good. We need to be a mensch. So I'm going to propose at this conference that what we need are mensch patterns, things where the clients, the customers will say, wow, that was unnecessarily and extremely shockingly cool of them. We need to overcompensate with the opposite of dark patterns things we can do to make the customers amazed. So uh, one example was uh, Zappos, you might have heard, when they're training new employees, uh, during the training process, they will pay people $4,000 if they quit during their initial training. They do this to make sure that someone really wants to work there and is not doing it just for the money. Uh, I also heard that Zappos, uh, at least when they first started, they would uh, tell you that they were shipping something by regular delivery and your shoes will arrive in three to five days, but then they would actually overnight them uh, anyway. And so people would go, Whoa, that was much faster than I expected. That's amazing. Uh, Nordstrom, the American clothing retailer, has a famously generous return policy that says they loudly announce you can return anything anytime. Even if you've worn it for years, we will always give you a full refund of anything you want to return. So once, It's apparently a true story. Uh, A man brought in a set of used car tires and brought them into Nordstrom for a refund. They're a clothing store, they don't sell tires. But the manager of the store looked at the price of the tires and what the man wanted. I I spent $140 on these tires and said, all right, we will refund your $140 and gave the man $140 and took his old used tires. And this story is legend. So I think that the cost for Nordstrom to do this was $140, but the goodwill generated by this story was priceless. You can find that the story is told over and over again, and now, because the story is told like a legend, everybody knows what extremes Nordstrom will go to to uh, refund your purchase, so everybody feels more comfortable shopping at Nordstrom because they used a mensch pattern. So I think you can look for dark patterns in the world, and play the what is the opposite of game to think of how you can be remarkably opposite of the evil doers of the world. To be shockingly and remarkably considerate and then tell that story loudly for your competitive advantage. If you wanna find uh, more great examples of of Mensch patterns, uh, Seth Godin I found uh, ever since his book Purple Cow, which was kind of about this, like how to be uh, remarkably, Uh, noteworthy, be remarkably awesome. Ever since then, his blog is constantly, has an ongoing stream of new stories of cool little companies doing things that are shockingly remarkable and cool and generous. And so lastly, you know how talks work and you're supposed to kind of end with something that you began with. So the Mensch pattern I thought I should do since I started out with a dark pattern, as I secretly had two 50 pound notes and these guys will both get one. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, you for playing the game. You <laughs> oh, you, you owe me 50 pounds? All right. Oh. You owe me one more? Yeah, it's supermensch. There we go. Ubermensch. Hey. All right. So um, I've got more. We, we need two, uh, two microphones for the audience. Um, so Mark gave me this one-hour slot here from 9 to 10. And I wrote this talk just for this conference, and I was rehearsing the talk a few nights ago. I went, oh shit, it's only 10 minutes long. (laughs) And uh, Mark said, that's okay, you can do some Q&A with the audience. I said, yeah, but I don't wanna be the expert. Um, I think being an expert is a really harmful mindset because if everyone acts like I have the answers, then I start to think that I do. Um, And I think answers are endings, and questions are beginnings. So, we are going to do a Q&A, and I've got a lot of questions for you people. <laughs> so, we need two microphones. Right, where did we go? Okay. First question, please raise your hand. Why did you come to this conference? Someone, please, raise your hand.
3: Two...
4: Hi, I'm Virginia, nice to meet you, Um, because Ed was very, very kind in how he pitched me the event, so Ed Grundy, and uh, I think he convinced me that it was different, and
2: it is actually different, so it worked. (laughs) Cool. Anyone else, please? Thank you. (laughs) Oh, thanks.
3: I came, Derek, for two reasons. One is because you've been shockingly remiss and not coming back to a business of software since your last visit, and it's been the only way to, to get to finally see you. Um, the main reason I came is because I am a bit of a snob in that I like to hang out with people that are far more intelligent than me and can teach me things, and I can constantly learn from them, and I hate to be the smartest person in the room, and that's never going to be a problem at business of software, certainly not nice. for me. Nice.
2: Nice answer. <laughs>
5: Can I just jump in? The way I do Q&A normally rather than A&Q is that you catch my eye and then I'll make sure that there's a mic there so we don't have that, okay, next question, and then someone on the other side of the room puts a hand up and we run around. So catch my eye and I'll make sure you've got a mic for your answers. Yeah,
2: and I don't need to choose. Anybody who has something to say, please pipe up and say it. Okay, so next question. What is the opposite of advertising? Down here.
1: Reputation.
2: Reputation? Ooh, thank you, good one. Helping. Helping, okay. Hidden gems. The secret service. Hidden gems and secret service? <laughs> oh, nice, double meaning, secret, okay, I like that. Cool. Word of mouth. Sorry? Word of mouth. Word of mouth.
3: Dissuading people, (laughs) actively pushing them away. Dissuading,
2: yes!
1: Restricting their ability to reach you. Nice. Having a business model.
2: (laughs) Okay, let's end on that one. Nice. (laughs) Okay. Would you shut down your company if it was no longer needed? That was easy. Okay. Um, getting more personal, is your company, the, the business that you're doing, is this art for you? Like, is this personal expression or is it just business?
1: It is because I love doing it. It's the thing that keeps me from being bored and being engaged in life.
2: So would you do it even if you were the last person on earth?
1: Yes, because what I do is creating frameworks and patterns, and I would still do that to give meaning to what to my existence.
2: Cool. There's somebody in the middle here. Mm-hmm.
5: Yes, it, it's the opportunity to create and to build a framework to enable myself to create more and create better. Would you also do it if you were the last person on Earth? Yes, but I might change the nature of what it was I was creating, but th- 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 okay. there'd still be me creating and maybe that's the core of it. So are you
2: doing kind of a hybrid between like, scratching your own itch and doing something you want to do, but also making it appealing to others? And so if there were no others...
5: If it wasn't scratching the itch, I wouldn't do it. Okay, It's my itch. Okay. And other people are also itchy, so that's
3: helpful. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Got to scratch cool.
3: them all. Cool. <laughs> <laughs>
5: I think there's often a a quite snobby thing where people talk about, you know, who on their deathbed would say, I wish I'd spent more hours at the office. I kind of like spending my time at the office.
1: Yeah.
5: I don't, you know, maybe I'm I'm, I'm lacking of imagination and not having hobbies, (laughs) but that is something I enjoy. So to answer your question, the last person, if you are the last person on earth, it's rather hard to manage a team of people, given there wouldn't be any, or to have any customers, Mm -hmm. but the broad elements of just running a business, is a passion, cool. my view.
2: It's funny, I had this, uh, an old girlfriend of mine from like 20 years ago. Uh, I didn't even remember having this conversation, but we talked for the first time like 20 years later, and she, said, and she asked me that last person on earth question about making music. And she said, do you remember that conversation we had 20 years ago? I said, no, and she said, <laughs> okay, she said, because I've been asking everybody about it ever since, that 20 years ago, I asked you that if you were the last person on earth Would you still make music? Do you remember that? I said, no. And she said, Well what would you say now? I said, Yeah, of course I would make music if I was the last person artist. She goes, and she like tears her hair out. She's like, I can't even fathom that. How on earth would you make music if there was nobody else there? I said, Well, how on earth could I not? What else would I do? And, uh, and she said, well, and I, we'd realized we had this like different worldview where ultimately, she said, ultimately, everything I do is for other people. And I went, oh, well, ultimately, everything I do is for myself. And it's just like this <laughs> different worldview. And, but then that got me thinking about business. And I think a lot of people in this room, like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's my itch. It's you're doing things. It's like, well, this is just what I want to do. You know, you're a passion example. And um, yeah, anyway, I just find it interesting to see if it's perfectly valid to have the completely opposite point
3: of view, to say, like, well, no, the whole reason I'm doing this business is for other people. Sorry. So in, in, in my case, uh, like uh, 20 years ago, I, I suffered um, severe repetitive stress injury. Uh, and I had, it was in the dot-com boom, and everyone was creating these great companies, and I thought that was the future. I couldn't participate. Mm. But I was locked out. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I started a company, I started researching voice recognition technologies back in 2000 or 1999, it was around then. Um, and uh, basically I've devoted my life to trying to uh, make it seamless for me to interact with computers because nice. I couldn't do it. Um, nice. And I've failed. <laughs> um, but life's not so bad. I'm, I'm a healthy individual, but I cannot press buttons. I can't click nice. Wow. And uh, So... You know, like, it's a kind of, you're excluded from participation, but you want to participate. Oh. <laughs> it's like, what?
4: <laughs> so <laughs>
3: that's it. It's my passion. I want, I want to create a product that will enable people who are similar to me to not have that problem.
2: Right.
3: And I've not found the solution yet. Wow. So oh. that's my story. That's nice.
2: Thanks.
5: Um, <laughs> I think we've got one more, one more okay. there, but I, I probably would think about not running the conference if I was the only person <laughs> on there. <laughs> um, it would be would a just, pretty sad and lonely conference. You <laughs> would just make the shirts. Yeah. You know? <laughs> hey, Derek. Hi. Oh, thanks. So I, back to the, your question, um, if you're doing it for passion or... Mm-hmm. So I used to think the same way where it was an expression of, everything I could do, and uh, recently I've changed my view because I feel like that's a little bit egotistical on my Mm -hmm. part. I should build a company that will outlive me Mm -hmm. to serve more people. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a balance would be good to Mm -hmm. somehow take a step step back and treat it as a business a little bit sometimes Mm -hmm. just for its own sake. And then the other question, if I would be doing it, if I was the last person, no, I'd probably try to hunt something. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
2: so that's a good transition into, I I have another question about investors. How do you reconcile having investors? Um, I never had that experience. So I'm wondering, like, is it creepy having other people's fingers in your creation?
6: Yeah, so uh, I would take the, uh, the opposing position, so the last time I started a company, and I'll be brief, um, it was one of those startups that turns out to be a really good life learning and character building experience. Mm-hmm. Um, ran about nine and a half months from really good idea to telling my investors that I was just kidding and they got nothing back and laying off all my co-founders. And the thing that made it worthwhile and good was all of the professional investors understood what we did it was yeah. the two friends of mine who put money in that don't talk to me so much anymore okay. <laughs> um, huh. that, that I, I really would have preferred not to have as investors. But you know, I, I think good investors really help you see things because they're objective and they're not you. Mm-hmm. And they, they tell you things, well, sometimes they tell you things that are true. And when they tell you things are true, those are useful. And the rest of the time you try to ignore it. it so it sounds like, so the good investors are a little more detached they're They're detached, and they see a lot of patterns, and you know they have investments and other things and if it doesn't work out, that's kind of what they expected in most of the cases, okay, whereas I poured my heart and soul in when I had to fire all of my co-founders and go home and lick my wounds and cry, um I felt bad about it but then, so you weren't detached so di- so you
2: had people that were, well, I guess you had two attached friends and, and some detached investors, but and into They're detached that,
6: now, those friends. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but the, into something that you were deeply personal about, and that, that still felt okay? It felt good. Huh. Okay,
1: sorry. Uh, we've got investors, um, and I think you have to be careful about who you choose, and you probably shouldn't be picking investors because they're investors all the time. Albeit it's great that they fund your company you should be careful and be picking investors who are gonna deliver you the most value. And often they've been operators themselves, uh, what you were saying, I guess, and can deliver you a lot more than you ever perhaps imagined. And maybe have made mistakes that you're about to and can preempt those and things like that. So it's all about the value they deliver beyond just that initial check for me, which is the reason why they're great if you pick the right ones. (laughs) Okay,
2: does this, so if you were a painter, and, and like an art dealer came by and said, like, mm, no, 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 more orange there, more something, something. that that would Most people would say that, that no, that's wrong. Like, get, get the art dealer out of the room. You're the artist. Yeah. But f- for business, it seems like sometimes it's okay then to have outside people come in and tell you how to change something because it's not just art because it's for others.
1: I, I don't think investors should necessarily tell you what to do. They okay. should hear what you want to do and Give you their feedback and tell you if they've made similar decisions or introduce you to people going through similar experiences okay and advise you as much as tell you and that's a real distinction that i think is important because as you say it's it's your art it's, it's your creation it's your business and ultimately you probably know it best albeit i'm sure they can deliver you a lot of value and advice along that journey cool thanks
6: yeah derek many of the great artworks that hang in the galleries across europe were sponsored Essentially, right. yeah. invested in by noblemen and kings and queens and dukes and yeah. uh, duchesses, whatever. Um, so, I figure there's always going to be a dance with the devil, if you right. like, um, yeah. whether you're an artist or an, or an entrepreneur.
4: Yeah.
2: Because, yeah, I mean, there's, you could even say um, Hollywood movies. You know, they have six writers and a bunch of people, I and mean, they, they want to make a great movie that is also as popular as can be. It's not just, you know, Wrenching catharsis uh,
1: from a single person.
3: Sorry, one uh.
1: Oh, sorry. Hi. Um, so, I think one of the ways I look at having investors is there's a bit of an overhead for me and the management team in working with them, um, but what it gives us is the ability to actually carry on trying to make a difference. So the thing we all got into and believe in would stop happening. We'd lose the ability to make that difference if we didn't have the investment. And then the piece beyond that is there's 35, 40 people that depend on having an income that wouldn't be there without that investment. They believe in it, they're putting their time in. Um, The strength of that team and the quality of those people would fall away without investment backing. Um, until we can get to the point where we're
4: making enough a difference to go it alone. Hmm. Okay, cool. thanks. I think it's important to mention that there is a choice. You don't have to have an investor. Right. So I have an experience of running a company with an investors and without investors. Mm. It's a different game. So whether you take investors on or not, it's a choice. Mm. But it's important for people to understand that it will have dramatic diff, uh, impact on how the business is run how it is grown and also what type of business you have yes so i just want to mention there is one company who is a huge company today who started without VC money and actually got to a very large size without any VC money and it's atlassian and mm. many of you would know the story about atlassian how they bootstrapped their all way to
2: But, sorry, uh, uh, how would you describe the difference in feeling between the company you did with and without investors?
4: It's not a difference in feeling. It's a difference in practice Mm -hmm. because um, what I found is that investors are a huge resource drain. Drain, So It's a resource drain. So if you have two or three founders and you take on investment, take into account that at least half of your time will be spent on getting the investment in and managing the investors once you get them in. Now that's a whole lot of amount of work on an investment from your resources. So instead of painting the painting, you will have to spend time explaining your vision, creating the shared vision with the investors, uh, getting them on board, and then later on nurturing them through the many years maybe that you will need them on board. Hmm. So that's just, you need to choose. And I think that we'll hear a a talk later on today about uh, where to invest your resources. That's a big investment. If you want to take on uh, uh, um, investors, you will have to invest your own time in it.
5: Okay. Uh, Can you pass it to Jack there and take Gonzalo at the back? Thank you. Uh, really great investors don't tell you what to do. They just ask really good questions that make you think about
2: how you're doing it. Nice. Okay.
1: I was just going to make a, a point very similar to the gentleman in the first row that some of the greatest music in history has been composed by people that were court musicians, mm-hmm. uh, effectively given an incubation space, often by European aristocrats, right. uh, and a whole ton of money to just get on with, with their own creation.
2: Hmm.
5: Okay, wait. Um. So, Jay, I'm going to do one more. James one more. Because he's...
1: Derek, over here. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I think you're kind of asking, like, what did it feel like to have investors? And we have investors in our company. But so did you. And the difference is that our investors, some of them gave us cash. But, like, your coworkers that came to work with you, they invested their passion and time mm. in what they were doing, in what you were doing. You know, or your spouse or girlfriend or whatever invested her stress in you doing this project. And so it's like, it's all, they're all investors in your project and these people just happen to give money and then act a little bit differently. But I think it's, okay. it's really similar.
2: Nice. Thanks. Um, <laughs> what is, what is the opposite of software? What'd you say, pay cut? A paper. Oh, paper, nice.
5: Hardware.
2: Simplicity. Nice. Simplicity. Human? Human?
5: Ah. Walks, walks in the countryside. Yeah.
2: <laughs> ah. Okay. We'll end with that one. What is, the, what is the most interesting new word you've learned lately? Flaxtension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you say? Flex tension. Flex tension? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Okay. Got it.
5: No, mom.
2: Okay. Um, has anyone read the book Art of Profitability? Yes. Wasn't it awesome? It was, yeah. That was my only question. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you remember when Chris Farley interviewed Paul McCartney on Saturday Night Live was and he awesome. had talked to you? And he's like, uh, do, do you remember the Beatles? Uh, that, that was awesome. Okay. Um, so, what book about business has changed the way you think about it in a major way? Think, really, you, you applied that to business? Every single minute of the day. How so?
6: Um, all the executive teams I work with, uh, sorry, the executive teams I work with think that they, they come to work every day believing they are thinking logically and that they've gotten all the way there on smarts, and every single one of them is completely <laughs> blind to the biases they bring and the, and the issues they've got. So... Yeah, I, so Sure. Uh, it's Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. He got a Nobel Prize for it, I think. Yeah. Pretty it's good.
2: Mostly, yeah, it's it's a, mostly it, a psychology book. Yeah, it's, about it's, it's all about devices.
6: how we think we are rational and all the underlying biases that actually show that we're not very...
1: Huh. okay. Andy? Uh, yeah, um, it's, it's called The Games People Play by uh, Dr. Eric Byrne. It's, okay. Again, it's psychology. It's entirely about... It's actually very relationship-based. It's about how... Right. Um, uh, the games and patterns that we get into when we interact with each, with each other as human beings. And I think that's just, you can't have a business without other people. Okay. Games people play? The games people play, yeah. Okay. It's, um, he, he sort of names a bunch of games and how the different states, it's a psychology, it's basically, it's the foundation of um, modern talk therapy and stuff like that. So it's really, cool. really interesting.
2: Thanks. Oh, by the way, in, in case you the one I mentioned earlier, Art of Profitability, it's by Adrian Slywatsky. And to me, that was, uh, it, it's very unique. It's told in a strange storytelling style with like chalk drawings. And uh, I think it's a great little book that just gets you thinking about what you're doing in different ways.
1: Uh. Chris. Uh, um, yeah, there's a book called Rest by Alex, and I can never pronounce their surname. Um, I found it a wonderful book that talks about rest not being the absence of work. Mm-hmm. And that in order to, to succeed, we don't need to be working 12, 14 hours a day. Actually, it's hugely beneficial to work deeply and then have breaks, walks in the countryside, Mm -hmm. to actually let your brain figure out, okay, what's the best way forward? Cool. Rest rest rest. by Alex. This
5: side clearly reads more than that side, so come on that (laughs) side. Um, I know what uh, Mark is going to suggest there.
3: The book that really did it for me was uh, Marshall Goldsmith's uh, The Things That Get Got You Here Won't Get You Here. Yes! Particularly when I went down the list and went, tick, done that, done that, done that, yes. done that. And then I realized, you're not actually, these are the things I'm not supposed to do. Right. Um, Sa-
2: same here. I felt like he was hiding under my desk, taking notes of what I had been doing and I shouldn't have been doing. that. Yeah, that book is, yeah, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. The, the idea is, that, um, if you don't mind me, mean, uh, the idea was it takes a certain set of skills to get you from nothing to a certain amount of success. But then to go from that level of success to further success uh, is a completely different set of skills. And what happens is people often try to use the same skills that got them here to get them there, and you need to completely change your game to get further. Brilliant book. What's his name? Marshall? Marshall Goldsmith. What got you here won't get you there. Uh, Nassim Taleb, Skin in the Game. Skin in the Game by Nassim Taleb, Ah, the author of Black Swan and other books. builds on thinking fast and slow in a way it looks at incentives and how they change systems. I particularly like the chapter about soul in the game mm-hmm. where he talks about like artisan cheese makers. Could you make them more efficient? Yeah, for sure. But that would take sort of the magic out of what they do and try to apply soul in the game to everything in the way mm-hmm. I do business. Nice.
5: Okay, Skin in the Game by Taleb. This is a really good time to point out, it's almost like you've been reading my mind and working out how I work various different things in. Um, we have a reading corner um, in the um, networking area, so if you just want a quiet moment, um, if all of this excitement and shouting and um, questions and answers and all the rest of it gets too much, um, you can go and hang out in reading corner. There are some great books, including um, my youngest, uh, eldest daughter's favourite book, which is yours. Um, <laughs> And also, where's Dwayne? Is Dwayne here? Dwayne Jackson's 4,000 Days, which I thoroughly recommend, one of the um, most entertaining reads um, ever. Um, and, yeah, there's a bunch of, I think your book's there, a bunch of other, other books as well. So if you've got books that you've bought um, that you want to share with someone, bring them along as well. But um, it's just a little quiet corner. And if people are reading, don't disturb them. <laughs>
1: really?
5: It's Introvert-friendly. Yes. Yeah.
1: So I would uh, recommend Let My People Go Surfing uh, by the, uh, the Patagonia founder. And I think actually like the Mensch patterns, like they use a lot of like really good patterns, like, you know, helping the, the environment and just like treating people really well. Cool. Uh, so I really recommend that one. Uh, Let
2: My People Go Surfing? Yeah.
1: Okay. It's uh, by the, I don't know, like he has a French name. I can't pronounce it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks.
3: But it's, it's really, really good. Uh, I'd like to recommend, uh, Seth Godin, this is marketing. Oh, I uh, haven't so read like, that uh, yet. It's like a okay. manifesto for what marketing should be, okay. um, you know, picking your smallest viable audience, uh, enrollment, not kind of manipulation, but actually going to where your customer is and finding a group of people large enough that, you know, you can, you can serve. Cool. So that's
2: really good. Yeah, I haven't read the book yet, but that little idea of the smallest viable audience is pretty profound. I like
1: that a lot. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.